welcome to this third installment in this teaching series entitled Women and the Church. I'm Andrew Shea, pastor of Teaching and Vision here at the Community of Branches HB. We're looking at exactly that topic, women and the church, in a biblically grounded light, answering questions about our theology and practice by looking to God's word while seeking to encourage maturity and unity amidst potentially differing views among the people of God. To recap, in the first episode, I spoke about the why and how of our approach to this discussion, and we looked at women in the created order, and then what the Bible has to say about women and their place in the kingdom of God. We also saw how Jesus challenged the presumptions and biases of his day by advocating for women and their value in a variety of contexts seen throughout the gospel accounts. In the second installment, we established a clear principle from Old Testament to New Testament regarding the place of men as the authority of the household and in the household of faith, that is the church, thus forming our position, our stated position as a complementarian church, meaning we believe women and men are equally valued and gifted by God, but they function in distinct and differing roles. Now, even as we affirmed the authority of men in the household and in the household of faith, that is in the church, we examined what the exercise of that authority is supposed to entail. And I hope that you discovered it isn't anything like what we would assume it to be from the traditional worldly sort of framework. Now, after discussing that broader topic of authority and its exercise in the church, we took some time to survey women's contributions as seen in the Old and New Testaments. We discovered that simply affirming a complementarian view of marriage and for church life does not mean we should just adopt any human tradition regarding what we would assume to be the normative practice of women and their involvement in church life. In both the home and through the history of God's people, women have demonstrated influence, leadership, tremendous capacity, and invaluable, significant contributions that were not relegated to the margins of church history, but included in the Bible, in the scriptures, for a purpose. Now, if you haven't taken the time to absorb the content from our first two episodes, I encourage you to stop right now and go back, because each time that we're together in these installments is going to build upon the understanding in the previous installment and we're dealing with the Bible. I don't want you to take my word on all those summary statements that I just gave you about those first two sets of teachings. Go back, see what we covered, because it's all there in the Word of God. See what it says for yourself. Now, turning to today, as I previewed in our previous installment, this episode is going to begin with us looking at women and the topic of spiritual gifts. We'll be looking at what the Bible says about the giftedness of women, and we'll study some of the more contentious passages that seem to prohibit women's contributions in certain contexts of church life. So let's dive in. I want to start by suggesting, in agreement with the broad variety of contributions and roles women held in the early church, such as what we saw clearly demonstrated in our study and our time together in the previous installment, I want to start by suggesting that the Bible reflects that women are gifted by the Holy Spirit in the same multitude of ways that men are gifted. There's a key prophecy in the book of Joel 
that refers to a day when both sons and daughters would receive the outpouring of the Spirit and the gift of prophecy. That's Joel chapter 2, verse 28. God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. It was Peter who cited this prophecy of Joel and declared it fulfilled at Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on men and women alike who were believers in Jesus. People were listening and wondering about the way the early believers were presenting themselves because they were openly speaking in tongues in that public environment. They were thinking, what in the world is going on? Are these people drunk? Acts chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, Peter responds, these people are not drunk. As you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to cite Joel chapter 2, verse 28, as the prophecy then fulfilled. So what does it mean that women would be given the gift of prophecy, the ability to exercise prophecy alongside men? Well, biblically, to be utilized for prophecy is a high honor. Prophets are those who are authoritatively, they're they're calling on God's people. They're calling them to God's standards and speaking to his dynamic purpose into the present cultural moment and circumstances. And they do so in the voice and leading of God himself. Consider 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Peter writes, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As such, the role of a prophet is listed alongside apostleship as making up the spiritual foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, speaking of the entrance of Gentiles to the people of God alongside the Jews, Paul says this, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Recognizing the fundamental importance of prophecy in building up the church, it's no surprise that later Paul refers to the practice of prophecy as the greater spiritual gift to aspire to exercise in the gathering of God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, Follow the way of love, he says, and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially I want you to desire prophecy. It's quite easy to conclude that through their practice of the spiritual gift of prophecy, it's undeniable that women were participating in the establishing of the foundation for the church through the role of prophet in at least certain gatherings and settings of God's people from the earliest stages of the church. If you want to see support for that, simply look to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 to 5, which we'll look at later on in this installment. You'll see a reference of women prophesying in the gathering of God's people. Or again, consider the four unmarried prophetic daughters of Philip, found in Acts chapter 21, 9, among others and other accounts that we discussed in our previous episode. So yes, the giftings of the Spirit being equally distributed to men as well as women appears to be firmly established in the scriptures. And I have no idea how you would argue based on the biblical evidence, based on what the Bible says as we've gone through this study. I don't know how anyone could contend that women are excluded in the practice of some or all of the various spiritual gifts. 
Now, what is disputable among genuine believers, genuine Christians today, are the specific settings in which those gifts were and are to be exercised. For some, and supported by a cursory reading of the texts of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. I mean, these are the key prohibitive texts. Based on, like, you just read those on the surface, you would conclude anything involving teaching and authority in a mixed setting of men and women. It's going to be viewed as an error that falls outside the bounds of the created order and the hierarchy of authority reflected in the complementarian relationship God established between men and women. Let's read these passages for ourselves. Let's see what they say on the surface, just in isolation. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, Paul says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And the other text that really apparently prohibits women from participation, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Paul says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. On the surface, the the application in both of these passages, it seems straightforward, right? However, the surface reading, universal prescription, if if we're going to take that and just say, okay, what we read right there, we're just going to apply that in all circumstances, at all times, and we're going to prohibit women from not just participating in certain roles, but we're just going to take it at face value, which means women cannot even speak in the gathering of God's people. If we take it that way, it seems to contradict both the total theology and witness of the New Testament regarding women and their place in the life and ministry of the early church, as we've seen, as we've seen in the examples that are right there in the Word of God. If we take these passages in isolation and treat them as these universal, immutable principles in the exercise of any and all leadership, influence, and authority on the part of women toward men, if that's said to violate creation order per these texts, then why would God, why would God himself specifically raise up women at certain times in history for roles of influence and authority? If he was in some way violating an inalienable principle that he himself had established. I mean, think of the example of Deborah, of Miriam in the Old Testament, two examples that we talked about in our previous installment. Why would Jesus use women as the exemplar over men in certain scenes in the gospel? If he's going to be violating something going on in created order by placing you know, women as the example above men. Think of Mary of Bethany when she united Jesus. Why would Priscilla's name be mentioned first as one who participated alongside her husband in the correction of Apollos' doctrine? Priscilla's name you know, often in, in, in Greek writing, that, that shows prominence. Priscilla's name is actually first. See that in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. Why would women be the benefactors behind and funders of the ministry of men? See Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Why would the woman at the well or the women who were there at the tomb 
be the individuals who are receiving the gospel message and declarations about Jesus' divinity or about Jesus' resurrection? Why would they then be commissioned and sent to espouse that gospel truth to not just women, but to men? You can see that in John chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 24, verses 9 through 12. Why would women at any time be considered prophetesses with the capacity to share the authoritative truths of God and God's voice and that seemingly in the formal gathering of God's people? Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. Why would we see the early church leader Timothy's legacy of faith being handed down? You know, Paul says from, from his grandmother to his mother down to him. See 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. If that's going to in some way violate created order that these women have had influence over this man, Timothy, that they've expressed and modeled the gospel as an example that these men are to emulate. Why would that be? Why is it that believing women are said to be the influence for their unbelieving spouses to come to the Lord in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14? Or why are husbands also told to submit to their wives and the wife's authority over the man's body in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4? And I mean, just look at it plainly. In Romans chapter 16, why would women hold positions of influence over house churches? Why would they have the titles of highest honor in the early church and be called side-by-side co-workers for the gospel with Paul? As we see in Romans 16, in that long line of ministry co-laborers, which involves a variety of women. If we take these two passages to just be these universal prescriptions that women can't even talk when God's people come together given the witness of the whole of the New Testament teaching and practice, it seems far more reasonable to conclude that while women were not traditionally expected to serve in the role of elders or overseers of local congregations, they still enjoyed a high degree of participation in the early ministry of the church. Supposed prohibitions regarding the exercise of their spiritual gifts, such as those found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, which I just read, that those specific prohibitions must be driven by the context of the places and the situations in which those prohibitions exist, in the context of the Corinthian church, in the context of what Paul's saying there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in the context of what he's saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So let's take a look at both of those key passages, starting with 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to discover more and try to square these, not with our own opinions and preferences or traditions. Let's try to square these passages with what we've already seen declared in the Bible itself. When we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we have to admit that one of the stranger interpretive challenges of understanding the passage and its apparent prohibition regarding women speaking in a church gathering is that it is first normalized earlier in that same book that women are prophesying and praying in the church as we see in chapter 11 before chapter 14 seemingly prohibits them from doing so later on. In Paul's instructions related to head coverings and the order of worship in the Corinthian gatherings back in that chapter 11, Paul assumes that women are in fact praying and prophesying in the gathering. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 7, it reads, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So why in the world does he then outlaw them from practicing this most essential and valued spiritual gift 
later on in chapter 14 of this same book. I challenge you to go back and read the entirety of that chapter, chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians. You know, what you'll find is that Paul's overriding concern when his prohibition shows up regarding women is good order in the worship gathering. The chief problem in the church being addressed in that chapter 14 is this kind of unhinged practice of the spiritual gift of tongues with people overlapping each other as they're practicing it and and in the interpretation of those tongues interrupting each other in that and even in prophecy. It appears the Corinthian gathering was filled with enthusiasm, filled to the brim, but there was no structure. And it was looking a little nutty to people who are coming in who are outsiders. So in chapter 14, if you read it, Paul is working to reel in the practices that are really disrupting people understanding and receiving from God in the flow of the Christian gathering. He instructs everyone to take turns, to wait until someone else is done speaking, and to make sure there is always an interpretation when it comes to the practice of tongues. For as 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 declares, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So by the time we get to verse 34, and the apparent prohibition regarding women speaking, it's clear he's referencing more disruptions in the flow of the gathering. Women appear to be falling into the habit of asking questions in the middle of others speaking, and they are further distracting from the order that Paul is seeking to establish in the Corinthian gatherings. Thus, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35 commands women to remain silent and directs them when they have questions and want to inquire about something, that's a literal quote, it should be with their husbands at home. In retrospect, who can really blame these women? They were formerly uneducated in both the Roman and the Jewish worlds, and they were formerly excluded from discipleship with Jewish rabbis. All of that was now changing in Christian community. They didn't know what they didn't know, and they were asking about it in the context of the gathering of God's people. But Paul was saying they ought to present their questions at another time and place, i.e. at home, where they could investigate the pertinent matters in detail with their more highly educated husbands. In effect, the silence of women during that portion of the gathering would address one more important consideration among the whole host of errors Paul was seeking to correct in the jumbled and frenetic Corinthian gatherings. The specific dynamics then at play in 1 Corinthians and its prohibitions regarding the participation of women, they don't really apply then in our context. We don't have constant interruptions in our order of worship. And women themselves are educated the same as men, thus no longer representing this uneducated majority bringing constant disruption at some point in our services. Now, having looked at 1 Corinthians 14 in context, Let's now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and its unique command for women to remain silent. Again, to understand any passage, particularly one that is seemingly at odds with other passages in the Bible, we have to look at context. In 1 Timothy as a whole, Paul is encouraging his young apprentice, Timothy, as he brings pastoral oversight to an unruly Ephesian church. Following Paul's short introduction, he immediately commands Timothy to oppose false teachers 
that have set up in Ephesus. He starts in verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you, Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So we can see there was a bit of a mess going on here in the Ephesian church that Timothy is supposed to stay back and address. And the mess going on in the church as a whole was also clearly reflected in the behavior among the women of that church community. Apparently, many women were dressing themselves improperly with outward adornment. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he suggests that the church take care of its widows, but that the young widows should not be financially supported because they seem to use the support for an opportunity to promote idleness and gossip. Some had even gone so far to, in the words of Paul, they ended up following Satan. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 15. So the implication from the full context of the book of 1 Timothy is that apart from the issues Timothy was also facing with men, among which there are many, read the entire book, there was a toxic culture propagating among the women of the Ephesian church. It's worthwhile to keep that context in mind as we look at the specific command of Paul for the women to quietly learn alongside the men and not teach or assume authority over a man, which is the NIV's rendering of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Looking closer at that apparent prohibition itself, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, Paul appears to be specifically prohibiting a form of teaching where women were usurping the established complementarian authority of the men in Ephesus. How do I read that? How do we see that? If we start by looking at the grammar and language of the sentence in that specific prohibition against women teaching and exercising authority, those two words for teaching and exercising authority are grammatically coupled together, meaning Paul uses two words to convey one single reality, one single core idea. He does this all throughout as a literary device, all throughout the letter of 1 Timothy. Let me give you some examples. In chapter 2, he writes that we're to give petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. That's chapter 2, verse 1. All these ideas, different words that all speak to the same idea. We're offering prayers, petitions, intercession, thanksgiving. On behalf of whom? On behalf of kings and all those in authority. That's chapter 2, verse 2, right? It's kind of like... Proving the same point. Anyone who's in authority, kings and all those in authority. Two words, one core idea. The reason is so we can live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. These are two word couplings, right? There's two words used that are each conveying one single reality. Peaceful and quiet lives, godliness and holiness. The same thing, but different dimensions of it to give us the full picture of the one reality. He says this way of life is good and pleases God. 
chapter 2, verse 3 there, who desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's the same core idea, right? To be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Different ways of speaking about the one shared reality. Salvation is coming to a knowledge of the truth, but it expands and helps us understand that core central idea. Paul later considers himself, and he speaks of himself as a herald and as an apostle. That's the same idea. An apostle is a herald. As a herald of the gospel, he is an apostle. He says, I am telling the truth. I'm not lying in chapter 2, verse 7. What's he saying? It's two phrases, but it's the one core same central idea. Men should pray, he says, lifting up holy hands. That's how they would pray, without anger or disputing. Anger and disputing, two ideas, but conveying one core reality of there being division and quarreling among God's people. That's chapter 2, verse 8. He commanded women to dress with decency and propriety, two different descriptive words, one core reality, and that they should learn in quietness and full submission. In each case that I just cited, there are two words that together make up a single point. The two words coupled together give a single united picture of what Paul is communicating. So when he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, that women should not teach or assume authority over a man, he's really outlawing a form of authoritative teaching because the two words refer to one dynamic going on in the relationship women had to men in the Ephesian congregation. If we look even closer, we see the word translated as authority in this phrase is used only once in the entirety of the New Testament. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Now, authority in general is spoken of throughout the Bible. What's the deal there? Well, different words are used to convey what that authority is. And this isn't the typical word employed because it's the only time we're, we're translating it exercise authority, but it's the only time this unique Greek word is utilized in the New Testament. Well, what word was it? It's the Greek word authenteo which is a compound word of two originally Greek words, right? Of autos, meaning the self, and entia, meaning arms or armor. Essentially, it's a military word referring to one who takes up their own authority, who leads like an autocrat, who unilaterally takes up arms, who literally is self-appointed without submission. So that's what makes this type of exercise authority and teaching unique here. It's not a neutral rendering of the concept of authority in general, but a decidedly negative one. It's clear that this is a usurping or a combative sort of exercise authority that the women of Ephesus were employing over the men. Given this additional context, it's crystal clear why Paul would outlaw this behavior among the women in 1 Timothy chapter 2 authoritative teaching that would be exercised with this usurping unilateral and combative spirit would be disavowed in the case of men as well as women given that it reflects a worldly exercise of authority not one that's framed on the gospel but to add insult to injury authority exercised in the manner referenced in first timothy chapter 2 from women to men doing so would convey a total disregard for the complementarian view of marriage espoused in the New Testament that was at the time broadly normative in the ancient world. Consequently, Paul would be very sensitive to protect against any perception of threatening those gender norms 
as he sought to establish the gospel in a community, which is why he goes on to reestablish those norms in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, by returning to an argument in favor of complementarian relationships derived from the created order, Adam being formed first and Eve second. But the point is, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is decisively outlawing and prohibiting women from practicing an authoritative style of teaching that is self-motivated, unilateral, usurping, and combative because it violates the created order and offends the universal gospel value of submission. Now, I just suggested something very important for this discussion, that Paul would be sensitive to protect assumed cultural norms, such as the complementarian view of gender relationships as seen in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In fact, Paul, in his writing and ministry, was always sensitive to protect against the perception that the gospel would violate cultural norms accepted in his day, so as not to put an obstacle to receiving the message of Jesus in the way of anybody who would be hearing it. It's worth investigating that a bit as we seek to understand how the gospel intersects with the culture around us today and how this conversation is influenced by this dynamic I'm identifying. So as I've just said, Paul, who is the author of the passages that we've been studying at length in this episode, he was always careful not to confuse his purpose among the people he was reaching with his gospel message. His primary goal was proclaiming the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus. It was not the outright reshaping of culture and the culture around him. I think Colossians chapter 1 verses 28 and 29 sums up his purpose really well. This was Paul's focus here. This is what he was driven for. He, that is Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. That's not to say the reception of the gospel didn't change the way people related to their assumed place in society in the mind of Paul or culture in general. But those roles and places in society were often pastorally bent and not broken as the gospel influenced the culture around it. This habit of bending and yet not breaking cultural rules is evident not just in Paul's expressed pastoral guidance, but in his practice and by his own confession. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul says, I become all things to all people. He acted like a Jew among the Jews while acting like a non-Jew, a Gentile among the Gentiles to relate to each in their own terms and so as not to put anything in the way of obscuring the gospel for his audience. Case in point, in Galatians, he condemns to hell. I mean, this is as serious as you can get. He, he, he calls curses upon anyone who promotes circumcision, the Jewish practice of circumcision, 
as necessary for conversion to Christ. See Galatians 1 and this passage, Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. But later on, if you look at Paul's example, as he enters Jerusalem, he circumcises his Greek traveling companion, Timothy, the individual after which 1 Timothy is named, so that they won't disturb the sensibilities of the community that's already there. That's in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted to take him, that is Timothy, along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what in the world is going on here? In this apparent contradiction of teaching and practice, Paul knows circumcision means nothing, and in fact, if you think it leads to salvation, such a belief will disqualify you from Christ, so contends Paul. But he's more than happy to adapt to the culture to ensure nothing will inhibit the proclamation and reception of the gospel among unbelievers. And so when it comes time to circumcise Timothy, even though it doesn't mean anything, if it means something in the eyes of these people, he's going to be careful to respect those perceptions and so be able to preach the gospel among them. A glaring and, and I'll admit, culturally offensive example of the same mode of operation is found in Paul's treatment of slavery. Nowhere does Paul outlaw slavery as an outcome of the gospel. In fact, he and the apostle Peter alike undergird it with a spiritual purpose. Slaves are to serve their masters as they would the Lord because that's going to be a testimony to their masters of the gospel message. And hopefully those masters are going to receive it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. You can see this teaching also in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, and from Peter and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Again, the motive behind this injunction to slaves is that through their humble and God-honoring service, masters would become inclined to the gospel message. Does that mean Paul had nothing to say about slaves from a gospel perspective that would bend and challenge the traditional understanding of slavery in the ancient world? Absolutely not. For Paul referred to slaves as co-equal inheritors of God's kingdom alongside their masters. You can see that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Thus seeding what would become a basis for the abolishing of slavery in our modern society today. The point is, Paul did not make reshaping the cultural norms of his day his primary agenda. You can see that over and over and over again. And even in the case of a slave who had run away from his master, he reinforces the institution of slavery, even as he reshapes the slave-master relationship through a gospel lens. That's in the book of Philemon. He teaches, he says, the slave should return to his master so as not to bring shame to the gospel. And the master should receive the slave as a brother with grace and not judgment. Paul knew that if every slave in the ancient world ran away from their masters because of their faith in Christ, then the entire economic and class system of the ancient world would be subverted and so cast Christianity as a whole in a decidedly negative light by all who were familiar, unfamiliar that is, with its content. And yet, working to redeem the worldly system from within, he encouraged a total reshaping of how all involved in the culture understood themselves in light of the teachings of the kingdom of God. 
The sensitivity Paul employed toward domestic norms between men and women is similar to everything that I've just discussed. We've already established in our first installment that the view of women was very, very low in both Jewish and Roman society in the time of Jesus. Though the gospel accounts regarding the role of women in general was and still is to this day subversive and formative toward changing views on women and the nature of marriage through all time, it was not Paul's or anyone else's primary mission to change how the synagogue or the institution of marriage functioned. In fact, to promote extreme overt changes to those institutions would likely have become a major obstacle for men and women to receive the gospel in Paul's day. Consider in the first century environment, if suddenly women were coming to faith in droves and were being empowered to usurp the traditional established authority of their husbands, not only would that be unbiblical in terms of how authority is to be sought and exercised, but it would be devastatingly disruptive to first century society. And as a consequence, people would be inhibited from receiving and even listening to the gospel message. So while there were likely many factors at play that influenced how Paul carefully shaped the public and established role of women in the ancient church, particularly so as we see in the context of Corinth and Ephesus, I mean, they had their unique dynamics going on there. There was likely no higher motivation, nothing driving Paul more than his desire to ensure the effective reception of the gospel. He wasn't going to let anything become a stumbling block for his unbelieving audience, such as seeing women act in ways that were not only offensive to the gospel, but culturally offensive in his own day. In the contemporary cultural moment in which we live, the reverse dynamic applies. I mean, to move forward into the future holding to a reduction in women's contributions, when those contributions are evident all throughout society and all throughout the scriptures, Doing that may galvanize traditionalists in the church, but it will do nothing for an effective gospel witness in this changing world. And what use is it to reapply general first century cultural sensibilities when there's such abundant biblical evidence that women, even in that time of intense public scrutiny and abhorrent devaluation, even then they had a monumental place in shaping and establishing the early church. Based on the witness of the scriptures alone, there is ample reason to encourage their increasing public participation in all aspects of the ministry without needing to overreach by erasing all distinctions in gender or by setting aside those texts which establish a complementarian view of gender and marriage. What does that look like in practice for us? Yeah, I want to make some clear and sensible conclusions for the branches community to weigh all of the biblical evidence in our next installment. But before we close, let's summarize what we went through in this episode. What did we cover in this installment? First, we made it clear from the Bible, from the Bible, from the word of God, that women are gifted in all the same ways as men, including in the exercise of the gift of prophecy, which is to speak the words of God, right? And the authority of God, to call God's people to God's standards in that dynamic cultural moment in which the prophet is speaking, led by the Holy Spirit. Women exercise that gift in the presence of men in the Bible. And as we've seen in the earlier weeks, they were employed in positions of leadership and even in traditional positions of authority. 
So what of the passages that apparently prohibited them from even speaking in the gathering of God's people? We looked at those passages. We found that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul was dealing with a very specific dynamic in the disorderly Corinthian church where women were interrupting the flow of service with their questions mid-gathering. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we found that Paul was outlawing women in Ephesus from the exercise of a combative, authoritative style of teaching that apparently had become common in the toxic culture of women in that church community. A usurping, authoritative teaching on the part of women such as what Paul referenced in 1 Timothy 2. It offends both the gospel values we all believe and the structure of complementary and gender relationships formed at creation which the broader culture at the time of Paul's writing affirmed. In every time and generation, it should be our prerogative to hold to our core convictions established in the Bible while responding carefully, as Paul did, to the culture of our own days so as not to set up undue obstacles for an unbelieving world to receive our gospel message of Jesus and salvation. How do we do that? How do we hold all these pieces that we've put forth and establish our practice moving forward? We'll cover that in our next installment. Please tune in to episode four of this series, Women and the Church.